Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Presented by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live, this series is made possible by the fine folks at Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. Today we are talking with singer, multi-instrumentalist, and beatboxer Kevin Olasola of the acapella group Pentatonix. Their music has been described as sweet, charming, and filled with vocal talent, and fantastic feel-good music that makes you just want to clap along. And Pentatonix has a new album of original songs called The Lucky Ones that just dropped last week. Now on the Going There podcast, our goal is to have tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And during our conversation, Kevin shares his thoughts on a very important and difficult topic, which is how stereotypes can impact our self-concept and mental health. Kevin was born in Kentucky. His father is a psychiatrist from Nigeria, and his mother is a nurse from Grenada. And he talks about the racism and anti-immigrant bias that his parents faced and how he watched what he described as psychological traumas unfold in his family. He also explained how his profound sense of duty to honor his parents and their struggle in this country impacted the way he saw himself, his career, and his future. He discussed how watching the traumas his family faced, as well as the stereotypes he faced throughout his life, were triggered when he witnessed the killing of George Floyd. And we talked about the complexities of his trying to understand and cope with the intense feelings he experienced as a result of that event. So let's go there and listen to what Kevin has to say. All right, Kevin, welcome to Going There. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this so much. Yeah, so you and I talked beforehand and, and we decided that a conversation we want to have was Understanding the immigrant experience as it relates to mental health, which is something that a lot of people are not familiar with. They're not necessarily familiar with a direct immigrant experience, and they're certainly not familiar with how it might influence mental health. And so let's just go right into that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I don't know if I can speak for every single immigrant, but I can definitely talk about my experience, especially because you know my dad, he's from Nigeria. Uh, my mom's from Grenada. And I, I think when they came to this country, they came with a lot of expectations and, and possibilities. My my dad went to medical school in Nigeria and he knew he wanted to be a doctor in the United States. And my mom came to study to be a nurse. 
And so this are this opportunity to come to the United States to do magnificent things, right? The white picket fence, to have an amazing stable life, to be able to elevate in a way that maybe you couldn't necessarily do in other countries because laws are more stable here, more the government's more stable here, things of that nature. But I think to them, because they one didn't completely understand all of the kind of cultural norms in the United States or how finances work in the United States. I think in the beginning, as, as I speak to my dad about it, there is a lot of struggle there. I mean, when he came here, he didn't have anything but a suitcase and he was working in McDonald's. Nobody knew that he was a doctor. You know, he didn't understand the, the process of buying real estate, what that looks like. He didn't understand what the stock market looked like. And so he's working and working and working because he wanted to provide for me and my two other siblings. And he didn't understand that there were other tools that people had utilized for years on end generationally to be able to build wealth here in the United States. It's something that he got into later in his life. You know, my dad is an avid stock market player. He, I mean, he's a day trader for sure while he's doing his psychiatry, psychiatry work and he absolutely loves it. But, you know, he felt this absolute pressure to succeed. And I think that that was hard to watch my dad because I think that definitely, he, he wasn't sleeping at all. He was constantly working three different jobs, working his own private practice and then working in two other nursing homes. And he would just come down, run down, tired so much. My mom taking care of us three kids because she wanted us to be extraordinary and uncommon, as my mom always says in this country. But that took a toll on her to make sure that her kids could be that, especially being people that look like me. There can be certain stigmas that you already think about with <laughs> not just being black, but an immigrant and black. And they got so many people saying negative things to them constantly. I remember, for example, <laughs> when I decided to go to boarding school for my 11th grade year, um, I went to this place called Phillips Academy in Andover, Mass. And it's you know, one of the top boarding schools in the country, sends a lot of kids to Ivy League schools. And my parents always had this vision that in this country, we have to be the best and have that pedigree because people will look at us, have a stigma about us, but you have to be able to shut them in their place. Say, hey, no, 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 you can't do that to me. I'm very educated. You can't say those things. So it's things like that that just put so much stress and they weren't sleeping. And, and I, I think in a lot of ways it deteriorated them, even though they felt like they had the foresight and the vision. And my dad, especially, he would tell me so much of the things that were going on and just the stress that he had from work. And so I think because of that scenario and that context, I always felt like, especially being the firstborn, first generation American, I wanted to do my absolute best for my parents. That was of utmost importance to me. So when I went to boarding school in my first semester, I didn't do well. I was so sad. And I think I was a little bit more critical on myself than I, I should have been. Because, of course, it's a, it's a transition experience for me. This is my first time coming from my high school, which had you know, pretty good academics, to literally one of the top places in the country. And so I'm being bombarded with this new experience that I'm not used to. And I would just beat myself up, beat myself up, beat myself up. So I decided to stay up all night and work and study. And I think that 
that did a number on me as I continued to <laughs> go throughout my adult life. And I got better throughout my whole time doing academia through Andover and Yale. But I think just that pressure that I felt, and not necessarily coming from them, but it was the context that made me want to rise up. I just put too much stress on myself. And, you know, I, I would still say to this day, one of the things that I struggle with that I think affects my my ability to function to my best is sleep. Cause I think I just told myself, this is what you have to do. Self-care was not the most important thing to me. Only now am I, am I getting better, I believe, about my self-care. But I'd say from boarding school up till a couple of years ago, I just thought that to be successful, especially for the context of being a first generation American, that was what was necessary. Now, there's a lot you know, that we're talking about right, right from the get-go that I want to try to unpack. And, and yeah, one of, one of the things that I'm kind of curious about is, you know, you're seeing this circumstance with your parents, right? You're seeing that they have this dream, they have this vision and, and it's, a, and it's a wonderful vision, you know, which is something I want to get into a little bit because oftentimes the things that are most stressful can come from actually a good place you know, and this is one of those situations, but you're watching them in some ways, like not necessarily, like you're watching them suffering, quite frankly, because of that vision and that dream. Now, it could have been easy for you at that point to say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm watching this destroy my parents. Like, I don't, I don't want to chase that same dream like that, that my parents are. How did you decide to, to own that and take that on as your own? That's a good question. I would say it's it's the stories that they told me of how they got here, their struggles getting here, and in so many ways how they believed God, providence, continued to be faithful to them and continue to give them opportunities to move forward. I think hearing that gave me strength to say, you know what, I want to take it upon myself to honor their struggle because apparently I think God is in this space and I want to be able to move forward and progress. As my parents always said, your goal as a child is to do better than we could have ever done. And so that always stayed with me and I wanna honor them, honestly. I think one thing about immigrant culture is honor is such a huge part of the familial structure honoring your parents, honoring who they are, honoring what they did. You don't talk back to your parents. If you say something that's a little off-putting, they just have to give you the look and you know it's time for me to be quiet. So I think having that made me, once again, also want to rise up to the occasion and show them that their investment, the money that they've made, the, their long-term vision for life is not going to go in vain with me or at least I'm going to try my best. Now, obviously, I was thinking more about medicine. I wanted to go into the medical field because my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. Also, I think growing up, a lot of people, when they said, oh, wow, you're talented in music, for some reason, I thought they were meaning, because of the context of the time in the media, what you saw Black people do was either R&B singing, rapping, or they were an athlete. So I always heard people say that, and I translated that as, oh, this is what you can do. This is the only thing you can do, rather than, in my head, I said, wait a second, hold on. 
No, 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 no. I have this brain. I know what I'm capable of. And so I very much fought against that. I didn't realize that's what my calling and purpose was to do, to be a musician. And that came later on. And that definitely messed with my parents. And I think added more stress to them because they thought that this investment might have been wasted, if you will. You don't come to the United States to be a musician. You be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. That's what we say. That, that's how it always is. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. So when I did that, I think I added a little bit more stress to them. And I'll never forget. Oh, my gosh. There was this time. After my band Pentatonix won the sing-off and we're moving to Los Angeles, we don't have money. You know, we're paying, I think, $1,200 in rent uh, for an apartment. So just very cheap living in Los Angeles. My dad comes over to my apartment, sees it. And the next day he's flying out, but he sends me this long text and says, I have worked so hard to send you to the best schools. I sent you to Andover. I sent you to Yale. And you're living here and you're doing this music thing that possibly could not work. Please, son, why are you doing this to yourself? You know, and that just made me feel even worse about the fact that I might not have honored them in the way that they expected me to honor them. And I think once again, those small things, even though it's coming from a beautiful place, of course, it still adds more stress and more to your mental health that you might not have necessarily thought that it would at, at the time that they said it, but it, it added a lot to me, but I still had to believe, you know, and, and one of the things that you're talking about is, you know, let's, let's sort of stipulate that hostile racism is just abjectly bad. You know, right. so when of someone course. says, says you can't do this or you can't because of something about you, that that's just, and, and the evidence is overwhelming. Of course. That. And, and it makes sense to people, but there's another thing that you mentioned, which was the idea of, isn't it great? Like, you know, you could be a musician, you could be an athlete. Like, isn't that great? Cause you know, being a musician or an athlete is a great thing. And it's like, yeah, but the, but the, but that stereotype, even if it's intended in some ways as a positive stereotype, we know now is very harmful for people because it puts you in a box and you have to understand yourself relative to someone else's expectations. And once that happens, the whole concept of your life changes. Right. Like now, Everything is like, oh, I've got to think about this in this context. And, and that is also incredibly damaging because then it's like you don't have the freedom to just kind of think for yourself. I mean, you do, but like there's this pressure like, oh, I always have to think about it in terms of what people are saying. And that, that's, that's so damaging, even though people would assume that it wouldn't be. Completely. And I think that's also why I, it's funny just even thinking about how certain constructs are created for you to start having a hard time thinking freely for what do you truly want in your life? I'll never forget when we won the sing-off and I spoke to an executive, <laughs> this label, who told me, because at that time I was a little bit, a little bit chubby, right? And they said, hey, if you're going to be a musician, I got to tell you right now, look, there are two types of people in this industry. You've got your fat Joes that are kind of morbidly obese, if you will, at that time, you know, obviously lost weight looks good now, but there's also your 50 cents, right? The people that are really, really jacked in this industry. You can't really be in between. You got to kind of pick one, even just that, just small micro aggressions like that. And, and, and this guy was black. So I was like, what do you, you, what is this? You, I hate, I did not like it because I think people put black people or Latinos in this monolith. And then it's hard for us to say, well, 
I now know who I am, but now I have to figure out how to be who I really believe I am in the construct of cultural societal norms. That doesn't make sense. And it's hard because, for example, I lived in China for a year and a half, right? I met black people who are from Africa that knows nothing, truly nothing about the struggle in America. But can I say that they are less black than somebody from America? No. And that they now want to, they, they speak Chinese, they're fluent in Chinese, they want to be an engineer in China. Some people, I think, look at them and say, oh, well, they don't understand the struggle in America. They don't understand the slave. No, they, they don't. But that doesn't mean that them being them is not furthering the cause for every single other person, right? So it, I, I think we all have to figure out how to live life in the best way that we all can and know that that will help move the needle, move the narrative forward 100%. And, and parents do this too, you know, yeah. because, because, you know, one of the things that I've learned from, you know, obviously I have parents, I work with, with people um, as a psychologist, and now I have kids, is that as much as I'd like to think otherwise, parents can't make you happy. They can only make no. you safe. I have no capacity for truly understanding my kids' happiness. I am petrified that something bad might happen to them. And I will never, ever stop right. worrying in that way. So I'm thinking about, you know, your dad. And look, it's it's like, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's you know, here's your dad who wants these things for you. And, but he's saying this thing in a way that, again, is, is, is kind of stereotyping what you should be doing the expectations you have. But I know being a father, that is just coming from, I'm sure he's just panicked inside. Like, you know, you know, he's saying the thing about, about, you know, I sent you this school, but that that's all like sort of window dressing. The real thing is like, I, I, I desperately want you to be happy and thrive at any chance that that might not be the case. I'm just, I'm just going to lose it, you know? Right. And that's the thing that's really tough about negotiating things with parents is because you know on some level that they're dealing on a safety level, but you're trying to understand yourself on an authentic happiness level. Completely. And, and that's the hardest thing for when you're, when you're a parent that's coming from a place of, of distress and always working and always trying to provide, and maybe you're not necessarily in a situation where you can really self-actualize if we're thinking about the hierarchy of needs, then it's hard to give yourself space to allow the child to have space and be figuring out their selves. They're truly, I mean, when you're really thinking about just your basic needs, how do you allow the child to self-actualize? Because you're just thinking about their basic needs when as a child, they're, they want to know more. They're trying to understand more. They're trying to be who they want to be, you know? So, and even in America, that th this is a, a huge issue. It, even in America, the wealthiest country in the world, you know? I knew I knew right then that you're you're the kid of a psychiatrist if you're busting out hierarchy of needs in the middle of the conversation. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I was like, poor kid. I was like, I heard that right there. I was like, oh man, that kid's probably been hearing about hierarchy of needs since oh he my. was four. <laughs> you can, listen, man. It's so funny. My my dad, it just the stories that 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 he wasn't allowed to say obviously names because of HIPAA, but just he'd sometimes come back from from work and he'd he you know what it's funny, he he would laugh. And I'd say, Dad, why are you laughing? And he says, because if I took a second to really think about it, I may cry. And I have to be the best that I can be for my own patients. You know what I mean? 
But he, it, it's things like that where he would say, you know, hierarchy needs is so important because some of these people can't, they, they don't have the mental space to think about that stuff because they are battling psychiatric problems, you know, and that's hard to think about self-actualization. But that's even a sense where, you know, my dad, I think he, because he was just working so much, he couldn't allow his children to give that time to self-actualize as much because he's thinking about his own needs and, and his family's needs. That, but that's an excellent way also of thinking about some of these things that we're talking about. You know, if you are someone who's experiencing racism, that's, that's now having your resources, having to deal with that. Right. If you feel like you're coming from a country that you're not, not your country of origin and you're having to, to understand and deal with all of the, like you were saying, like, I don't, I don't know what I do here and how do people make life work? Like that's already then starting to take up stress and space. And, right. and, and people, I think, have trouble understanding that concept when they're looking at, well, what if you're, you're not majority culture? What if you're an immigrant? You know, no one's, no one's saying anything to you or like, no, you know, you're, you're allowed to do what you want. It's like, you're not seeing all those levels, you know, that certain people get to wake up in the morning and basically sort of just go through without having to worry about any of that. You right. know, like, like this thing you were talking about, about seeing yourself represented. You know, people talk about that in cultural representation, you know, and they say, oh, why, why do certain people have to be on TV and certain people have to be in films? It's because, because if you don't see yourself represented across the spectrum of, of the things that you could be, just like you said, you kind of, not just you, but everybody naturally assumes, well, okay, this is what black people do. This is what Asian people do. This is what Jewish people do. This is what women do. And if you're not going through it personally, it's hard to understand how that kind of already sets you back some. Right. What you said is interesting because when you say that, then it makes me think about even my dad's and my mom's situation even more in the sense of there were a lot of psychological traumas happening throughout their experience, but they didn't call it psychological trauma with all these different ways that they were being attacked because of culture. And I think because they dealt with it a little bit differently, because it wasn't something that was systemic for them over hundreds of years that so many black people have felt over the years because of slavery, that, that is real psychological trauma. But for them, they, because they came from another country, they came at this at a, as a land of opportunity. It's funny, I was actually talking to a pastor about this, a, a good friend of mine, Albert Tate. Um, he's a pastor in Monrovia. And I had an interview when I spoke to him about how, and, he, and he's a black pastor, I talked to him about how my parents came and saw this country as a land of opportunity, even though they were going through these psychological traumas, but they attacked it differently saying, we will succeed, we're gonna survive, we're gonna thrive in this place, we can. And he said, this is so interesting. Nobody in my community, when I was growing up in America, spoke of America as a land of opportunity. They spoke of it as a place that they're always trying to attack us, come at us, and bring us down. So if you're hearing that as a child, it's going to take a lot of work to see this as an opportunity for you to break out of every single norm that culture is putting upon you and say, I'm going to succeed. It's such a hard dilemma. You know, it's a hard dilemma to try to to break out of. And, and it doesn't matter if you're an immigrant or, or from here, it's, it's all hard. But the way you can attack it is different, I think, just because of that immigrant background, if you will, you know? And one of the things that is, and this is the case with, with mental health issues as well. It's like, you know, and, and I think if we're, if we're to fold in, you know, 
discrimination, historical trauma, mental health issues, and, and how that, that cycle can happen. One of the things that's very tough is if you don't validate what's going on, what's happened historically, what, what's happening, historical racism, current racism, you know, anti-immigrant bias, whatever is, is particular to, to an individual, if you don't acknowledge that, it winds up getting worse. And right. yet at the same time, if you get so deep into it that the idea of thriving isn't even in your, in your sphere, then that's potential, you know, because that's one of the, that's one of the, the endpoints of any kind of discrimination is that the person themselves now believes and has internalized the oppression which can manifest in, oh, I don't, I don't even think I have the opportunity to thrive. And balancing those things is brutal. I, I think it's a brutal thing and it's a constant balance of like, right. how much do you acknowledge it? How much do you, do you examine it versus how much do you try to push it to the side so that you can move forward? And, and it's just, it's a lot. Complete, oh my gosh, you are speaking so much truth. And, and so when you say that, it's interesting because I think growing up, because my parents were just speaking to everything as, opportunity, dreams, even though I saw the stress and I saw some of the cultural, I think, attacks, if you will, on them, and I heard these small microaggressions, I was still thinking about it from a, oh, this is an opportunity. I'm still going to be able to do my thing. So I think I was actually naive, to be honest, on a lot of the things that were going on in the community in the United States. I really was. And then as I grew up and I met other people, I'd say, oh, wait, there's more here. But I think also, I think because of that way of growing up, I had this, if you will, a, a way, if it's, if you want to call it healthy or not, you can term it whatever, but I had a way to just kind of stay within myself and say, no, I'm, I'm going to get over this. I'm, I'm going to figure this out. Right. And especially with everything that happened with George Floyd, I've learned so much more. And now I'm saying, okay, how can I utilize all of my experiences as an experience to continue moving this narrative forward? Because this is really important. And there are people that need to see people like me succeed so that they know it is possible. They know it's possible. And it's, I know it's going to be difficult, but we can, we can do this and we can make this equitable for all of us. How do we, all of us take the, the chances and the opportunities now so that we can bring us to a place that's healthy to be able to move this forward? Because I don't want my community to have these psychological traumas constantly so that they feel like they can't move up but also i don't want people to continuously tell them hey you're nothing you're you can't do these things right so that we can get to a healthy space where we're like okay we now are in a headspace to get what we truly deserve we have to all be in that space and it's just it's a struggle it's a battle this has been going for <laughs> for years man goodness gracious yeah and it's and i think that what you're talking about really applies across the board to stressors, including the stress of, of you know, you're talking about before, like something like sleep, you know, like losing sleep as, as much as initially it's like, well, you know, I'm not equating sleep with, with historical racism, but, no, 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 of course. but, but the, but the, but the concept of if you don't acknowledge that there's something that's happening that could really drag you under, you know, and sleep is one of those things that's very subtle in the same way that microaggressions are subtle you know, then all of a sudden, and you're not giving it that time, then all of a sudden you just, you just wake up and you're like, why am I not, why am I not, you know, like, right. why am I just not able to X? Why am I not able to Y? And I think what, I think what you're talking about is, is exactly right. And I'm kind of curious, just your thoughts of how do you feel like people can, can take the time to acknowledge, to feel the intensity of, of the, of that, you know, like, it's like almost like 
of seeing that whole picture, but then still kind of like you did kind of push it aside. Like right. I actually think those go together. You know, you, you validate and then you problem solve. But for a lot of people, those are exactly the opposite. Like you either, you know, dwell in it or you move past it. You've got to figure out. And once again, it, it, it takes time because these are microaggressions. These are things that have happened and built on every single day experience. Think about it. You're now in your 30s or 40s or 50s. That's a lot to unpack. But you got to figure out healthy ways to just chip at it little by little. I don't know if that's a, a counselor or somebody, that, a therapist that you can speak to. I know for myself, when everything happened with George Floyd, I told my band, I'm taking a couple of weeks and I know we have work. And you know, I don't know if I'm entitled to this or, or whatnot, because of course we still have a lot of work to do with the band, but I really took two weeks. And, and, and the first thing I did, I played video games. And I think there's a lot of people that are like, I can't believe you are trivializing this situation by playing video games. And I said, no, 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 no. I love it when Ed Sheeran, for example, he'll play with Legos while he's writing, because there's something about doing that. I think where subconsciously you're, thinking through and figuring out things and opening yourself up by doing something that seems like a menial task. And that gave me time to really think, what, what is going on here? Why do I feel the way do I do? Why do I feel such rage? Why do I feel all of these things? Because I didn't want to finally say something if I put a statement out and come from a place of just blatant emotion. And I'm not factualizing or giving people a view in my experience with these things, right? Because I've had these, <laughs> I've definitely had all these microaggressions that have happened to me growing up. I remember one of the, <laughs> one of the very first ones or two of them that really still bug me sometimes. One was whenever I was the first chair cellist in um, the Kentucky State Orchestra. I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember these two kids in the back just being like, of course, just getting it because he's black of course he's gonna get that right they're trying to make a statement i was like what i worked for this are you serious i i know i'm good at playing cello stop just because there's nobody else that's here that looks like me doesn't mean i'm not supposed to be here and then the same thing uh getting into to yale and i got into other ivy league schools too but then just these people saying of course of course you're gonna get it if, uh, you know this is what happens when you get affirmative action you get this kid in there and i was like my gosh so it's just i'm during that George Floyd incident, I'm just thinking through all these things. And, and finally, I got to get myself in a place that was calm, healthy, and then be able to speak this truth out. But it was interesting, though, because also I think people want you to make a statement in this culture so quickly. And I'm like, I don't want to say anything quick that, that I don't mean. I'm not, I don't want to say anything out of rage. I don't want to say anything, you know, so. Yeah, and I, I always have a very tough tough time with this, you know, especially when I work with people who are of minority culture, where I, to me, I feel as though racism or prejudice or those kinds of traumas is like when someone has a death, like a death in the family. And when any, if anyone were to say, you need to grieve this way, I'm just like, that. there's no such thing as that. So the idea for me, and I don't, this, this just may be my bias of telling someone who's gone through, you know, any number of incidents of racism or sexism or anti-gay bias, you know, you need to do it this way. Right. To me, that's just, that's just, that, that's the exact opposite. Like the way I kind of think of it is like when, when there's been a death, which is that you need to do what you need to do to heal. And, right. and nobody knows what that is. You don't even know what that is. But the idea that, oh, you're playing video games. 
I, I, my, my natural reaction would be like, look, if you need to play video games, play video games. If you need to, if you need to run around in a circle, run around in a circle, like, right. because you're the one who's on the receiving end of this. Like, you, I mean, just again, this is my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. About no. that. So you're going to be the victim of oppression. And then someone's going to tell you how you have to handle it. I mean, how much oppression can one person take? Like you have to deal with the original one. Now you have to react a certain way. It's almost just like, man, give, give, give this guy space to figure this out. Like, no, no we obviously as a society don't have this figured out. So right. Why should, why should he have it figured out in like a day or something? Right. You know? But I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's wrong on my part, but you know. No, well, th- th- but see, this is why I think social media has, has exacerbated this ability to, if you will, grieve in a situation like this or ponder, think. And it's one of the reasons, I, truly, honestly, I don't use social media very often. I use it, as one of my friends said, social media can be an amazing master, but a terrible slave. And what he meant by that is if you use it the way you should utilize it to promote your voice, promote what you're trying to do, that's great. But then if you take in too much of it, it's going to destroy you. And just hearing so many people saying, I can't believe you're coming out saying things. I was like, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I cannot allow that to mess up my process of really deeply thinking about these things. So I agree with you. You can't tell people how to grieve or how to figure things out. But And, and I wonder how you, you feel like as a psychologist when somebody comes with a death and how do you even start that process with them? Is it usually after they've healed for a little bit and now you can have a healthy conversation about, or is it, you know, at the onset, you just say, Hey, take time and then come back to me. I I don't even know how you would do that. I think it's the same thing when someone's experienced a trauma and someone's experienced, you know, some kind of discrimination or oppression. I, I, to me, I feel like one of the things that, that my job is, you know, you're talking about, about the hierarchy of needs and, you know, which, which gets into humanistic theory is, is, you know, one of the cores of humanistic theory is clearing away all of the ways that society messes us up so that you can have your authentic path. And I feel as though my, my job in that moment is to be able to, for lack of better of saying it, not be somebody who feeds into that, you know? So for example, like, you know, a lot of times when people have like trauma or death, it's sort of like, you know, you'll have people be like, well, they lived a good life. And, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, basically saying like, well, I don't feel like dealing with this. And so my, my job is to specifically as best as possible, you know, I'm, I'm human, so I'll, I'll make errors with this, but to, to convey, this is a place where it's okay, whatever it is that you need. And to start with the fact that we don't necessarily have to do anything that might be otherwise conventionally considered quote unquote productive, you know, until you're ready to do that. But my willingness to be there when you're going through that, I'm hoping moves you away from the people who are telling you what you should do, because those are people who are bringing you way, 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 way behind. And I'm hoping that's like, if we can at least stay in place, that's the equivalent of moving ahead. If that, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. I mean, to stay in that place of dealing with it rather than distract yourself in, unproductive ways i absolutely love that i I have nothing to say that's amazing so as an example like i see your situation like with with george floyd and playing video games yeah my 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 job in that situation would be a voice saying don't necessarily i mean i I don't ever like to say don't listen to people because i always feel like it's, it's easy to dismiss things that are either offensive or whatever in that case 
I, I would, you know, I would most likely lose it a little bit if somebody were saying that to you, but I'd have to kind of backtrack it a little bit. Be like, okay, let's, let's consider this perspective, you know, and I, I would, but I would say, but I just want you to know that here's another perspective that if you are seeing something that is triggering that trauma for you, and you have all these incidents that are, are relevant to this, and you need time to heal, then that's what you need. And you should not be told by other people how to heal, when to heal, why to heal. You know, these are your responsibilities in healing. If you want to, like, like you did, if you want to take on that responsibility, like you used to think from your parents and said, like, I want, I want to honor them this way. You know, and you say, like, I want to do something on a more societal level for, for what just happened. That, that's great if that's what you want to do. Right. But it's got to be when you're ready, because otherwise I feel like it's just it's just perpetuating the problem. I agree. I feel like also what you're saying is when you don't heal foundationally, it makes, I won't even say your motives fractured, but probably the efficiency, the love, the trust, your ability to do it will be a little fractured. I love that concept of foundational healing. I don't even know, to be honest, why I like it so much other than it just seems to have like, it really connects you know, and, and that's part of the problem, I think, with something like racism is that it's, it's people oftentimes are asking you to heal in a, in a non-foundational way, right? It's not getting all the way to the, to the bottom of it. It's not saying like, let's look at the entire thing and maybe the entire thing over your life. Let's just look at this incident and let's, you know, let's, let's move on. You know, now you've looked at this for a day and now it's like, and the foundational healing, I don't, I'll be honest with you. I don't even know what that means. But I know it's important. I know it has a role in this. And so I'm right. so psyched that you brought it up. <laughs> no. Well, but I mean, we're just talking about even the, the idea of America, right? Hundreds of years of, you know, let, let's just talk, talk about the systemic racism. There's foundational healing that needs to be done there. I mean, sure, on a person-in-person -person level, but I mean, I have friends from all different walks of life, cultures. My, my wife is Caucasian. But I think it's the system that needs the real change if you can change that and make it equitable for everybody now there's some actual opportunities like you said in so many other communities for self-actualization how do i be who i want to be because now the system is such that i can walk on solid ground Th this is not stacked against me okay now what does love look like for me because now i'm not coming from a fractured place thinking about all these other microaggressions right and so I don't know, that to me is so unbelievably important. And will America ever get there? I don't think we'll get to the perfect place. We're not going to get to utopia, but we will always keep progressing if we decide to take this on for real. Kevin, honestly, like, thank you for coming on going there. I feel like I'm not going to stop thinking about the concept of foundational healing. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping to put help put that concept out there because can I tell you, I feel like that that is where it's at. I don't know how, I don't know why exactly, but it resonated. And I'm, I'm so psyched that you're willing to talk about these, these tough issues. Man, thank you for having me. And thanks for having a platform for people to really think through these things. This is important. This is just as important as eating. You know what I mean? This is truly just as important. So thank you for creating a platform for like, for people like that. I will right, listen, best of luck in your ongoing career. I hope we get a chance to talk again. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you, man. So there it is, 
Kevin Olasola of Pentatonix talking about his experience with stereotypes, including watching his parents experience trauma as a result of racism and anti-immigrant bias, as well as his own experience of stereotypes, including the effect of watching the George Floyd killing. There's so much to potentially take away from the conversation with Kevin, but one of the most important concepts that I took away was the term foundational healing that Kevin used towards the end of our discussion. I've seen that term used before, and it often referred to a holistic, integrated, spiritual form of individual healing. But here, Kevin is really using the term foundational as a description of a societal healing that needs to occur to confront and address the damaging effects that stereotypes, such as racism and anti-immigrant bias, have on mental health and well-being. If we are truly going to understand mental illness on a public health level, we have to examine how systemic racism and bias creates a foundational problem that brutally harms many people in this country. And as we develop individual treatments for mental illness, we must also look at how underlying factors such as systemic racism can worsen mental health through increased stress, poor access to care, fewer economic opportunities, and differential treatment in the legal, healthcare, and education systems. And only when we fully heal these foundational issues can we take a more complete approach to tackling the epidemic of mental illness. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project, which is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at The Crossroads. Consequence Podcast Network.